Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. Well, this is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest almost needs no introduction. He had one of the longest running talk shows in history, and he started my career. Jerry Springer, welcome. Wow, this is so surreal. I mean, no, you are so nice. Boy, it's been years. Do you remember me? Well, I remember you as a kid. You do? You worked under, uh, what's, what's his name? Toby. Toby. Yes, Toby. Yeah, he was a character. Oh, yes, he was. Yesterday, I caught up with Cheyenne for three and a half hours. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I feel like when you experience something like the Jerry Springer show, only people that have experienced the Jerry oh, Springer show be, yeah. understand well, what that was like. There ought to be just like a club. I mean, yeah. who did you talk about that with? That was an amazing experience. I mean, 27 years. Diesel. Yeah. It was like, truthfully, it was my first job out of college. I drove up to Chicago right out of college. Where were you in college? I went to Purdue. Yeah. Oh, good. I interviewed at WGN. This yeah. is so crazy. And in the same courtyard, I saw a flyer that Jerry Springer was looking for interns. <laughs> <laughs> the same trip. And so I was like, oh my God. So I called the number. I got a hold of Nathan Cotterman. Do you remember he worked for Rochelle? Oh, Nathan. Yeah. Oh my, these names are coming back. And same day, like I walked over mm -hmm. to NBC Tower from WGN. It was just right across the way. Well, sure, sure. And I graduated two weeks later and started as an intern. And I had- Yeah, because GN was in the, um, the Tribune building. Exactly. It? Yeah, yeah. And I had, I mean, obviously I'd watched your show. Like everybody used yeah. to cut school to watch your show. <laughs> and so when I told my dad that I had the opportunity to work on your show, he wasn't upset that I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. He was like, hell yeah, do that. You know, like he was oh, cheering me on. Because the question I was going to ask him at the end was when Rena first told you that she's going to be working on the Jerry Springer show, you have two choices. Was your reaction, what? Or was it, can you get me tickets? My dad was definitely of the camp, get me tickets. My dad ran a manufacturing company in New Albany, Indiana. There was someone in his factory that was a guest on the show and went to Jamaica Oh, no, not for those spring break shows. Went to Jamaica, and then he saw a picture of me on my dad's desk and was like, how do you know her? And my dad was like, how do you know her? Yeah. <laughs> so that was just like the craziest moment, you know? Like, yeah. But yeah, I mean, my dad always wanted to work in the entertainment industry. 
and my grandfather did the lights on Broadway. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was in your blood. It was totally in my blood, but I really, I mean, I was straight out of college and it's funny, like looking back at like the dark side of the nineties and all these behind the scenes videos of your show. Oh my gosh. Like it it was crazy. There's no experience like that. Right. In other words, I've always thought that if you were a producer on our show, you could one day be a producer on any other show because it would be a cakewalk compared to it. I mean, like, you know, if you're a producer on like one of these network shows late night, what do you do? You can pick up the phone, you call their scheduler, you know, they show up in their limo. There's nothing you really have to do. You just schedule it. They want to be on to promote their book. But if you're a producer on our show, you're talking to people who have never been on a plane, never stayed at a hotel. You have to get them up on time so that they get to the airport. I mean, just you babysit them for, you know, the couple of days beforehand. It's the training is unbelievable. It's like boot camp. It's boot camp. That's exactly how I describe it too. That is amazing. I was actually wondering like how much of the production side as the host you understood, but the way that you just described that, you actually understood everything that we had to do to get the guests there. Yes. I mean, but if someone turned to me and said, you the executive producer of a show. In other words, you create a show now. I wouldn't have a clue how to do it. In other words, I knew what you guys did, but I I was so separated from what actually happened, including not knowing ahead of time. It became a game. They never told me who the guests were going to be just to see what my reaction would be. And it, it made it easier for me. So then I could have an honest reaction. If I knew what the show was about, then all my reactions would be fake, you know, but this way I was really surprised. And that's, that's that's so interesting. So when I first started this podcast with my dad, I thought about actually having him on with who I was interviewing, but in order for him to have actually a better reaction, I interview the guest, I cut down the segment. I send him the segment and then we have a reaction together for the first time where we haven't talked about the episode at all until we record it together. Oh, that's and then he gives idea. the final thought like yeah. you. Yes, that's the way to do it. That's you honestly, like your concept totally inspired me, but instead of like pitting people against each other, right. I thought my dad's wisdom and our relationship could kind of be the Oh, oh that's a great idea. Yeah. When, you know, when I heard about it, it, it sounds like a, yeah, because the chemistry is so authentic. It's you and your dad. So, you know, right away, it's going to be more real than anything we can do by hiring two separate people and saying, you two, let's see if you have chemistry. If it's you and your dad, there's chemistry. It's not always good chemistry necessarily, but it's always chemistry. That's magical. It is so magical. Thank you so much for saying that. Can I get you to say this is Jerry Springer on the Better Call Daddy show? Yeah. This is Jerry Springer on the Better Call Daddy show. Oh my God, that is so amazing. (laughs) Wow. You know, I really too, when I told my older son, who, by the way, just had his bar mitzvah this year, he's 13 now, that I was going to interview you. He was like, how many YouTube subscribers does he have? Oh, yeah. That's all he, he, that's the first question. Yeah. Or TikTok. And you know what? It's funny because I looked it up and then I had actually interviewed somebody, another YouTuber, but he's just a YouTuber who had more YouTube subscribers than the Jerry Springer show. 
And so he was like, ah, don't worry about it. I was like, but you don't understand. I'm like, Jerry is a legend. I'm like, his career is way cooler than that YouTuber. <laughs> but kids today, no, yeah, all they yeah. care about is YouTube and TikTok. Yeah, yeah. When I go to my, it's funny, my grandson just had his Mets fair as well, but he, he plays baseball and uh, he's on a travel team. And I go to the games. When I'm at the games, the kids come up to me and they show me, they know me mainly from TikTok because, you know, they're 13 years old. So their moms probably don't let them watch the show. So what they know me from is TikTok and all these things. And that is the biggest thing to them. That's why I knew that TikTok was bigger than anything you do on television with the kids. Yeah, yeah. that's so interesting. And what is your thought about people creating this like internet famous personas? Well, it's, it, it's inevitable. Uh, it's following technology, which has yeah. always been the case. And in one way, it's the, it's the democratization of our culture. Show business, for example, used to be a couple of executives sitting either in Hollywood or in New York, and they would decide who the big acts will be, what albums they'll promote, who the stars are going to be. There was a, a star system. But then along came technology and along came cell phones. And well, along came talk radio. That really was the first one. And that was the first time that the audience, people listening, became the entertainment. You would listen to radio talk shows. And back then, when, you know, when I was young, when Larry King, et cetera, on radio, you would listen not to hear Larry, but to hear the audience call in and rant and rave. And then Phil Donahue came along on television and the magic was the audience. So all of a sudden we have regular people being who you watch on television. And then came interactive. So you have all these shows like America's Got Talent, American Idol, where the audience becomes the entertainment. They sing, they dance, and the audience votes for who the next star will be. It's going to be Kelly Clarkson. And so it's, you know, and now with cell phones and, you know, and Instagram and all that, it's the people have become their own entertainment. We are entertained by ourselves and we decide who the stars are, not some executives. And so now executives are going around every day looking at what are, the, what are people watching? What are they doing? And that's democracy. It doesn't necessarily mean that the people chosen on, let's say, America's Got Talent, maybe that person isn't as talented as Sinatra was or Elvis was or, you know, but it's chosen by the people. So democracy doesn't always give you the most qualified person, but at least it's the choice of, of the people. And, and that's true in politics, and it's true now in our culture, and it's true in entertainment. The people decide who the stars are, and it's us. Do you think the people can help you get a network show? Uh, well, networks aren't going to be so critical in the future. Uh, technology has passed networks by. What the industry is trying to figure out now, and it's, it's going to be concluded long after I'm gone, they have to decide how to monetize how kids are getting their entertainment right. know, on social media. How do you monetize social media? And how do you monetize a system where you can avoid the commercials. And of course, the people buying the commercials, they know that the kids aren't watching anymore. 
So the technology is working against them. So we're going to have to figure out a way, you know, otherwise our entertainment is just going to be, see, TikTok doesn't cost any money. It's just some kid going on and, and it becomes viral. The times I've been on TikTok with things that went viral, which by the way, I didn't create, it's some of the very good people who work with me, they come up with an idea and they just pictures of me. And then I wind up on TikTok saying something stupid, which is ah. easy for me, which is easy for me to do. But they, you know, the kids just do it. You don't have to pay producers. You don't have to pay it. And that's going to be a problem. It's very democratic. But how, do, uh, how are we going to get great movies made anymore? I mean, now we've transitioned to Netflix. And after Netflix, we'll transition to something else. But eventually, there's not going to be a profit motive in it. And if there's not a profit motive, will the only entertainment we have be that the government will support through tax dollars and that'll pay for, that'll pay for it. I, I don't know how else you do it. Who's going to, you know, in television, who's going to produce great shows if there's no money? Yeah, that is interesting to think about. Yeah. I mean, all our shows are facing that. Ratings in television today are nothing like during our heyday of any show. I mean, look at late night television. It's, it's not half of what it used to be in terms of revenue and viewership. Nobody's doing it anymore. It's like, because the kids aren't, as you said, the kids aren't watching television. Right, and they're our future. Yeah, and they can go on their phones and it's free. And that's what they do all day long. Yeah, yeah, I know. They gotta somehow ban that in schools or have a some kind of magnet that just blocks all usage. Well, we phone. might get that from abroad. Yeah, I know. Yeah, talk, talk to Putin. Exactly. What are your thoughts about that? Well, he's really evil. It's funny. He says that the the greatest catastrophe, the, the geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, the greatest one, was the uh, fall of the Soviet Union in 91, which, first of all, is amazing to say in a century that also, by the way, happened to have two world wars and a Holocaust. But he thinks the fall of communism was the biggest thing anyway. But he really does live in the 20th century because he is repeating, though he doesn't yet have the widespread concentration camps, but he is repeating Hitler's game plan. In 1939, you know, starting in 38, first Austria, the Anschluss, then he takes a little piece of Czechoslovakia the Sudetenland, because there were German-speaking people in, the, in that part of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland. And so he says, I'll just take this Sudetenland and that'll be it. And so the world doesn't do anything about that. Then all of a sudden he takes the rest of Czechoslovakia. Well, he's going to stop there. And then finally he goes into Poland and that was too much. But one little piece at a time is what Hitler did. And no one thing seemed enough to start a world war. And that's where we are now. Russia takes Crimea. Russia takes Georgia. Now Russia is taking the Ukraine. It takes piece by piece and we never, it never reaches the point where, are you really gonna start a world war over this? Though morally, it's unfair, particularly after we made a deal with the Ukraine that if you give up your nuclear missiles, we'll always protect you. So they give up their nuclear missiles and now no one's protecting them. Well, we're sending money and you know we're gonna have the we're gonna interrupt their the economics of Russia. But beyond that, what do we do? Because 
if we do send our troops, which we will to the NATO countries, but if we actually send troops into the Ukraine and start shooting, well, obviously Russia's going to shoot back and they won't just shoot back there. They'll, you know, send some submarines and blow up New York and then we'll blow up Moscow and there goes the world. So it's a horrible situation, but it's the same position where finally the West stood up to Hitler and said, it may be a world war, but we're going to stop this. One country cannot take over another. That is the cardinal rule of the United Nations. You are not allowed to invade another country unless it's self-defense. The Ukraine didn't attack Russia. I mean, that's just so stupid. This war has no purpose other than the insanity and ego of Putin, who just wants to be remembered as a czar, wants to be remembered. He wants to reconstruct the Soviet empire and get back all the countries, the republics, he lost 15 republics when the Soviet Union fell in 91. 15 republics broke away and became independent. He wants them all back. We can't permit that to happen, and that's a violation of the, of the United Nations Charter, and yet no one wants to do anything about it, and so Ukraine is left alone. And, and, and then he calls Ukraine, he wants to stop the Nazification like they're Nazis, and the president of the Ukraine is Jewish. So right, how, isn't that something? Yeah, he's the Nazi. And, uh, and it has, Ukraine has a significant Jewish population there. Right. Uh, you know, almost half a million people, uh, half a million Jews live in the Ukraine. It's definitely been revived. Yeah. And he's going around killing people just for his own ego. The Russian people, they're not angry at the Ukraine. Half the people living in the Ukraine speak Russian. Right. They've got their relatives there. They don't want to fight this war but they're under a dictatorship. So at some point, Putin's got to go. How do we get rid of him? That's above my pay grade, but that has to, but that has to happen. I mean, that has to happen because, you know, a world war is not a real option because that's not going to save the Ukraine. That'll just kill millions and millions and millions of people all around the world. But getting rid of Putin, however they do it, they have to work on that because the Russian people don't want a war against the Ukraine. And yeah. the only reason the protests so far aren't larger, although they're pretty large for Russia, the protests within Russia, the only reason they're not larger is because right now they get arrested and put in jail and maybe even killed. So, you know, right now Putin's still got the heavy thumb, but he doesn't have the emotional support of the country. Someone has to loosen that up. And I guess the CIA and whatever is probably working on stuff like that. But how can you let one crazy person go around taking over countries and killing people. I just don't get it. And that's what has to be. Now, they're not going to talk about that publicly, but I don't think we can have Putin around. Does it make He has sense? to be tried for war crimes. Wow. It's a war crime. Yeah. Flat out. I don't even know what their defense is. Their defense is a, is a lie. And then on top of all of that, you got Trump. How much evidence do we need that Trump wants to be a dictator? That if shots are fired, then it becomes treason because then we're at war with Russia. And Trump has openly, now openly, in words and deeds, supported Putin in what he's doing. To have a guy who was president of the United States speak out against America in favor of a dictatorship, why is this guy walking the streets? Trump should be arrested. How do you permit that from happening? I remember during the Vietnam War, everyone got upset with, not everyone, but a lot of people, most people got upset with Jane Fonda 
who really? was, well, because she went over to North Vietnam and was taking pictures on the North Vietnamese tanks because she was anti-Johnson, anti what America was doing with the war. And many of us were protesting the war, but it was a little much. You can protest the war, but you don't get on the side of the people who are shooting American sons and daughters. You know, she was blacklisted for quite some time because of her stand, which in later years, she said she went a little overboard with that, though she still is against the war and God bless her for that. But now you got, what's the difference with Trump going around saying, boy, he's so savvy. I, you know, I admire the guy. You got to hand it to him. You know, it's like, excuse me, this guy is killing Ukrainians. He's invaded another country. What Trump has been doing, has been doing Putin's bidding since he got in office. Putin has always wanted to reconstruct the Russian empire. And the only thing since 91 that was stopping him from reconstructing the Russian empire was NATO and the European Union, which surrounded him. So he couldn't expand. Trump comes into office and wants to break up NATO, disparages all our European allies and, and, and divide America. So all of a sudden, NATO is weakened. The European Union is weakened. The United States is absolutely divided. And now suddenly there was nothing, no unity in stopping Putin doing what he wants to now expand. Now he can expand because he's thinking NATO has been divided. European Union is divided. Everyone's fighting with America. Americans are fighting among themselves. They're no longer a unified power. So let's go. And he goes. Thankfully, Biden is starting to unify NATO. I mean, he's done a hell of a job just in the last two months in getting NATO together, in getting the European Union together. So finally, there is this unity. So at least they're getting the sanctions as a start. And Putin's moving now. Putin probably thought there was a chance Trump was going to get reelected. So rather than invade right away, let's Let's get four more years of Trump weakening America and NATO and the European Union. Four more years of doing that. But then when Biden got elected, he suddenly realized as Biden's working to unify NATO and Europe again, I better get going immediately because it's only going to get worse. It's only going to be tougher if I wait any longer. So now we have Russia moving into the Ukraine. It is horrible what has happened. And we have basically, through these Trump years, permitted this expansion of the Russian empire, or at least the attempt to expand it. It's funny that you brought that up because I have a unity shirt on. Can you see that? Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Actually, I brought up Nathan earlier and I asked him if he would have a question for you. And it was all around that. So I want to bring it up really quick. Okay. He wanted to know like what your thoughts were about unifying our country. How are we going to do that? Obviously, we want to have some unity. But the reality is, there's a section of America, and it becomes larger and larger, that doesn't want to. In other words, we don't yet have a civil war. But if there's a major event, we'll have one. Because each person in America has already chosen his or her side. And just like the original civil war in 1860, one side wanted to preserve the Union and the other side wanted to demolish it. It's the same thing now. You have a right wing, which is made up of white supremacists, people who are 
against minorities, against the Statue of Liberty and what it stands for, that are against the whole concept. On the one side, you have the people that believe in the Declaration of Independence, that we're there to form a more perfect union, that all men are created equal, all people now are created equal. And the Statue of Liberty is give me your tired, you're hungry, you're poor, and the whole civil rights movement. The American dream is a multicultural society. That is what America is supposed to be. A little over half the country still believes that. And demographically, much more than half the country will be in that position by 2030. So a multicultural America where all people are created equal and we will work hard at giving people equal opportunity. Give me your tired, your hungry, poor. That's America. But then there is this branch of right-wingers supported by talk radio, Trumpians, Trump acolytes, white supremacists that don't want that. They see America as white, and we don't need people in Trump's words from these shithole countries. You know, it's like they really believe that. So when we talk about unity, how is there unity when some people don't even want the country? They want a different country. At some point, we have to stand up and say, this is America. We're multicultural. There's no compromise on that. There's just no compromise. The problem we have is that the structure of our government gets in the way because at the time the nation was formed and in order to get the states to ratify the constitution, you had a compromise with some of the smaller states. When they made the Congress, the Congress was based on population. One congressperson for every, whatever, 200 and some odd thousand voters. Now it's higher. So that was based on population. The smallest state said, whoa, no, we'll have no power. Because remember, back when they were colonies, they were each independent, in a sense, republics. So they didn't think of themselves as part of America. They thought of themselves as, I'm a Virginian. I'm from Delaware. I'm, you know, their allegiance was to their colony. And the only reason they would agree to become part of this confederation at first to fight for independence from England would ultimately be, and they would become part of a new government if parliament, the Congress, wasn't based just on population, because we will never, Virginia and New York will always, and Massachusetts, they will decide everything. We'll have no power. So our founders came up with the two levels of our Congress, the Senate and the Congress. So the Congress was based on population, but the Senate, each state got two senators. Well, in the beginning, okay, that was all right. But what has happened over 240 years is most people live in just seven states. So you have, as it turns out, 16% of Americans have 50% of the Senate because each state gets two people. And even though most Americans live in California, Texas, New York, et cetera, Wyoming, which has the population of Cincinnati, <laughs> Wyoming gets two senators, the same as California. California has 30 million people and Wyoming doesn't even have a million. So therefore, most of the Senate is always gonna be rural, is always gonna be conservative. And therefore, these few people, even though they make up over 16% of the population, one sixth percent of the American population, they control 50% of the Senate. 50 senators come from those states and 50 senators come. So everyone else is piled into just these few states. 
And that means since the Senate can block any legislation, we can't get anything done. So no matter how liberal America becomes, and most Americans are left of center, most Americans are pro-choice, most Americans uh, support you know, gay marriage, women's rights, most Americans support integration, all those things. In the Senate, they don't have any power. And so seven of the last eight presidential elections, more Americans voted for the Democratic candidate for president than the Republican. Seven of the last eight elections, people voted Democrat. And yet we keep getting Republican presidents because of the Electoral College, which is based on the Senate. That's what I mean. Our system is now getting in the way of what the American people want. We want democracy, but the Constitution is currently set up, blocks us from having real democracy. And that's why we can't get any legislation on voter suppression. We can't get legislation on health care. We can't get the legislation through on hunger, on immigration, poverty, education, the Supreme Court. We can't get these things through because the country is set up to let these few, in terms of population, these small populated states run the country. I thought you were going to run for president. And therefore, I am today announcing my candidacy for the uh, presidency of it. No, I was born in England. Oh, that's right. Tell me about that. The son of survivors. Yeah, I know. Yeah, my parents got, my parents survived, my mom and dad, but no one else in the family did. Grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, they all were exterminated. But mom and dad got three weeks before Hitler goes into Poland, actually a little less than three weeks. I think it was August 8th, 17th of 1939. Mom and dad got into England. September 1st, two weeks later, the door shut and Jews were no longer let out of Germany and they were put into the camps. So everyone else was exterminated. They got to England. My sister and I were born there during the war, but they came to America when I was five. We came on the Queen Mary to New York. And in fact, I left England when I found out I couldn't be king. Uh, I was, oh man, was I there. Talk, <laughs> talk about having to take a, a right turn in my career. <laughs> Pivot, yeah. Yeah, but anyway. What was it like having Holocaust survivor parents? They never really talked much about it. It was too difficult. But on our walls at home were the pictures of all my relatives. So I grew up seeing all these faded photographs. And, you know, yeah, that was my mom. That was my dad. That was all of that. And, you know, as I got a little older, you know, I, I learned about it, et cetera. They wouldn't even go and see The Sound of Music because of the scenes. And, you know, they would never go back to Germany. They would, it was just because they literally were forced out of their country in midlife. So they had to quickly learn English. I mean, you can imagine suddenly being chased to the other part of the world. Now, they chose to come to America because they had lived through two world wars you know, the first and second. So they always thought it'd be safer to be in America. And then, so I became an American citizen. They became an American citizen after they were here five years. And then when I turned 18, I became an American citizen because I had to choose for my own as an adult. And the next day we went into Vietnam. Very smart timing. <laughs> stay, oh come to America and stay out of a war. That was that belief. So my parents really believed in the American dream. But as a multicultural society, that it didn't matter what your religion was, it didn't matter where you were from, who your parents were, that in this country, you would be given a shot at making it. Not a guarantee, but a shot. 
you know, so when I hear people like Trump and his views on immigration and, and not just Trump, I mean, he's, you know, not the brightest bulb in the circuit, but his followers, you know, the people that are just adopting this and it's like crazy. It's like shades of Germany in the 1930s, you know, just some of these positions and, you know, these marches, Jews will not replace us, the insurrection, the assault on our capital. And so many of these Republicans, what, what are they thinking? Because virtually in every private conversation with them, they say Trump's a bozo and oh yeah, that was horrible. But then, then they're silent when it comes to doing something about it. Now, the good news is, <laughs> look at you light up. <laughs> yeah, what's the good news? <laughs> I mean, Trump will never be president again. I mean, that's that's over. It's um, and then in part, not all for good reasons, not all for very moral reasons. It's just because there's so many other Republicans now who want to be president that they're not going to. The closer well, you can already see, they're less and less. He's getting less and less support. And, you know, all these other guys are going to be running and they're going to, so it's not going to be a unified party. And, you know, plus all these indictments that at some point are going to come with, with Trump. And he certainly didn't help himself by supporting Putin this last week. So, you know, just think of all the commercials that are going to be run. It's like, there's no way, if he couldn't be elected president last time, when he had all the power of the presidency, he had every, he controlled everything. And he's still lost by 8 million votes. How is he going to do it when he has no power? So he'll have a following. And I'm not saying he can't get the nomination, but there's no chance America's going to vote for him again. I mean, they, you know, people are just tired. There's, they don't want to go through this again. So that's the good news. It won't be him. The scary news is the next person who's like him is likely to be smarter. You know, the, the advantage we always had over Trump is that he wasn't very smart. So, you know, you could out, always outfox him. But I don't know that that's going to be the case with the next right winger that comes up. So it's still going to be a battle, but it won't be Trump. What was it like facing the KKK on your show? Back when it happened, it was personally insulting. But of course, our show didn't permit any censorship, which I really supported. So, you know, if I'm letting all these people on with horror, with things which people don't like to hear, then all of a sudden there's someone who's insulting me. I can't say, well, you're not allowed on. We can have all these other people on. The show is about dysfunction, people that were dysfunctional in their behavior and whatever, antisocial. So these neo-Nazis certainly fit into that category. And so I lost my temper on, on one show. But beyond that, you know, just like with a clan 10, 15 years ago, these people are clowns. So I never took it seriously. You know, I said, oh, you know, they're just crazy. Of course, little did I know then that we'd have people like that running for president. That's what became shocking. I just always assume these are nutsos and this is America. And if you want to get on television and, and spout where it's free society, you know, I'm not allowed to censor you. I'm not allowed to say because I disagree, you can't be on. What do you think about censorship happening now? I don't think we ought to have it. I mean, hate speech is illegal. And I think you can separate that. But I'm opposed to censorship and certainly opposed to the book burning. This is the part of the population, I should say, that, you know, they're just not, they don't believe in what America stands for. I mean, that's what it is. I, you may be wonderful otherwise, but you don't believe in America. Just because you stand up during the seventh inning stretch singing God Bless America, you're not fooling me. You know, you know, I know you don't really believe in America, but if this makes you more socially acceptable in your neighborhood, 
fine. But you're lying. And what's funny is that they can justify the assault on our Congress, where people got shot, police officers got shot, whatever. And they are outraged that a football player took a knee during the singing of the national anthem. Can you think of any protest that is more peaceful, more quiet, less threatening than just getting down on a knee, which is the exact same thing you do when you pray. You're just getting down on a knee. And that we find despicable and salting and saying, hang Mike Pence and go after Nancy Pelosi, lock him, kill him, lock him up, whatever. That's okay. That protest is okay. That's America. Holy cow. We're on a different planet. So when you say unity, unity is okay if they finally say, yeah, I believe in America. If you don't believe in America, what are you doing here? There are lots of countries where you have just one ethnic group, where you're 90%, 95% one ethnic group. But you can be there and everyone's like you. But the idea of America is that we're going to be a collection of all kinds of races, religions, ethnic groups, histories. That's what America is about. Either buy in or take a knee. <laughs> take a knee. Have you ever been to Israel? Oh, yeah. I have family there. Oh, nice. Yeah. What was your first experience like going there? Well, the first feeling I had was I had never been in a place where virtually everyone was Jewish. Yeah. That, you know, because you grow up in America and you realize you're a minority, which is totally. fine. America has been great for Jews. I mean, you know, there are obviously some people that are anti-Semitic, but generally I can't ever tell you that I suffered personal prejudice. I mean, you know, I was derailed because I was Jewish. It never happened in America. And so, you know, I realized also my, my wife's Protestant, you know, I mean, I, I live in a multicultural society and they, I love it. But it was weird to be in a country where I wasn't the minority and you don't, you're there a couple of days and you say, why is this different? And you suddenly realize, so this is what it feels like. It's always just interesting. And Do you feel like an instant connection though with other Jews? Well, sure. But that's true of any ethnic group. That's true. You know, when the Irish get together, when Polish people get together, Italians, I mean, that's natural and that's kind of cool. I mean, you know, I like that. And yeah. I even like that the comedy is like that, the inside comedy. And, oh, yes, uh, I love that too. Among your own, that's, that's great. As long as it's not used as a weapon to demonize another group. But yeah, yeah, obviously there, there's a connection. I just want to ask you a couple fun questions that like people always ask me when they found out that I worked there. And I'm sure you get this too. Like, how do you answer when people want to know if it's real or fake? Like, how do you answer that question? The stories are real. The reactions are embellished because the audience is cheering them on. It's if these very same people uh, had appeared on Oprah, they would never leave their seats. You know, that was, but the stories, when I was told about all this, they had to go into a room where the lawyers sit and the camera's on. You are legally liable. And, and oftentimes a guest would then say, no, I'm not going on because they would have to admit that they were making something up. So you had to swear under oath that what you're about to say actually happened. And there was other evidence you would have to have some documents and stuff like that. Oh my God, so the story we're talking about, like yeah. we had to photocopy people's IDs and blow oh, them sure. up and fax them and prove yeah. they were related. Oh my yeah. God. Now, have we ever been fooled? I'm sure. But the stories were real, but the behavior I think was inevitably embellished. First of all, by the time four or five years into the show, we had become part of pop culture. So the people who were on the, no one was on our show that didn't know what it was like. You know, you wouldn't call the show, can I be on? 
unless you had watched the show and watched it a thousand times, because otherwise you wouldn't even know the, no the phone number. You know, you'd have to get it off the screen. We're not in the phone book. Do they have phone books anymore? No, they don't. That's how old I am. So the people knew the drill. In other words, when they came on, they were already in their minds primed up to act crazy. So that's how that evolved. And then when Universal bought us, they said, from now on, we can only do crazy. In other words, we weren't allowed. I don't know if you were still there with the show then, but we weren't allowed to do normal uplifting stories. We had to send them to another show. And the producers actually were given the list of the shows they sent them to based on what the subject matter was. We could only do crazy. Wow. I feel like the show kind of like took on a life of its own. Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah, no one could conceive of this. <laughs> Did any of the stories like medication stay with you? I mean, were there some that you like continually think about? Well, I don't continually think about, but I remember, you know, the one I always give is the guy who married his horse. That was that was a classic. And uh, yeah, there, there's some there's some stories. In the very beginning, we did some when it was a more serious show. You know, we, we did some heartfelt shows with kids with certain diseases and stuff like that. So there were some three kids. Yeah. What about oh, the yeah. homeless special that you did? Oh, that's right. We did it in California. We went out on the streets. Yeah. So we did it. I remember the mole people that we did underneath uh, the subways in New York. So yeah, we did some serious shows in the beginning, but in the end, it became a circus. And what uh, do you want your legacy to be? I don't want one. I mean, I think it's only everyone is ultimately forgotten unless you happen to have been a president with your name on a school. You know, if I ask people what was the maiden name of their great grandmother, 99% of the population doesn't have a clue. And that's your own family. I think it is important that your children and your grandchildren, they have a good memory of you. That's the legacy. But for anybody else, I remember we had a meeting at the show and I was making a reference to Jack Benny and literally the entire room just stared at me. Like, do we know him? Jack Benny, in my lifetime, was like the top comedian. You know, it'd be like today, well, let's say in singing, uh, you know, you know, Beyonce. Well, someone not to know Jack Benny or Bob Hope. I know that one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, he lived to 100. That's why you probably you know. But I mean, it's like, tell me three things about Calvin Coolidge. He was president of the United States. Well, why? But that's true. The point is, it's an ego thing. When we today talk about our legacy, who are we kidding? We're going to dust or maybe heaven or whatever. I hope that's really nice because I can't go to hell. I have very light skin. I burn real easy. <laughs> so, you know, please, no hell. You know, I hope to be a good person. I hope I've lived a good life. I hope I've set a good example for my daughter and for my grandson, you know, and just been a good family man. And that's what I care about. Wow. And you've accomplished so much in your career. And for you to say that, that's really interesting. Well, well, thank you. But 95% of that is luck. You think so? Oh, I know so. And I'll tell you how I know. The reason I know is because there is not one person on the planet Earth that had anything to do with the decision to be born, to whom you'd be born, with what health you'd be born with, with what kind of brain, in what era, in what country, what kind of health. This is all a gift. The example I always give is Bill Gates, right? Incredibly successful, unbelievable. If he had been born in Ethiopia, he would have been dead by the age of five. Who are we kidding? Like, well, I made it. Why can't they? Oh, give me a break. I was born to great parents with a decent brain, you know? So yeah, I would get breaks. I never even thought I'd be in show business. 
you know, I was doing something else. And someone came, hey, I guess I was in politics. I was mayor at the time. And they come to me and said, when you finish being mayor, you've been on the council and mayor or a 10-year span. You know the city of Cincinnati. How about anchoring our news? This was the NBC affiliate. And that's how I got to be the news anchor for 10 years. And because I was a news anchor for 10 years, the company that owned the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati also owned talk shows. They owned Phil Donahue, Sally Jessica Raphael. Well, Phil was retiring. So the CEO takes me to lunch one day and says, Phil's retiring. We're going to do another talk show. You're hosting it. So I was assigned to it. That's what I mean. Life is luck. I didn't sit at home and say, you know, I want to be a talk show. All these jobs I have been handed. Somebody comes after 27 years of our show. How about uh, you're a lawyer? Why not Judge Jerry? And that's how that happens. It's like. It was that easy? Well, see, it really isn't. But it happened. For me, it was easy because I didn't do anything. <laughs> but you've I, developed your talent. Well, if you think I have talent. I think I'm a nice person and reasonably bright. But I. I don't have any particular talent. But even if you believe that, that was given to me then. You know, if I have a comedic timing, that's how my brain works. I didn't give my brain, I exercised it by going to school and reading and doing all that. But that's like working out in a gym. You know, education is working your brain out. I just can't logically take credit for successes that I've had when I know full well if Walter Bartlett didn't take me out to lunch that day and said, we're starting another talk show, you're going to host it. Other than Cincinnati, no one would have heard of Jerry Springer. And do I you, know that. So who am I that, kidding? Do you, you think what? that you could help make someone else's career? Do you I think can, that people can get into the industry just from who they know? Well, you could get a job, maybe. They can't make you a star. You could get a job, some job in the industry. You might be a receptionist. You might be a gopher. You might be, initially, you start as an intern or an AP. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, but at that, you know, out of school. But then you develop. But no, I can't take anybody and say, give that person a talk show. No one's going to do that. So this business about it's who you know, it doesn't even happen with movie stars. They'll tell you that, you know, they, you know, because they're famous stars and they don't get the role they wanted. You know, every virtually every star, when they interview the person, they say, yeah, that's the role I wanted. But they, you know, such and such got it. In the end, people are putting, let's say it's a movie, people are putting, or even anchoring on the news, people are putting money into that station. And if they're putting their money into it, they want to make sure it's successful. If I'm hired to be the executive producer of the 11 o'clock news, or the general manager of the TV station, my job depends on us getting ratings so that we can make a profit. So why am I going to put anyone as the anchor of the 11 o'clock news, if that person isn't going to bring me great ratings and money so that I can keep my job. And that ultimately becomes, you know, it's not who you know, it's do you fit into what whoever does the hiring is looking for, for the preservation of their job. Every department head wants their department to make money. That's how they get an increase in their salary. That's how they get a bonus. That's how they get an advancement and, uh, you know, a promotion. And so that's how the business works. You know, a phone call can get you. Could you give her an interview? Can you give him an interview? Find him a place. And then your foot's in the door. And then it's up to you. But no one in the end is going to hire you. And that's why the advice I give is if you love, let's say you love singing, 
As long as you love singing and music, you can be a singer and play an instrument every day of your life and even somewhere get paid for it. But if your goal is to become a star, that's useless because you have no control over becoming a star. Nobody does. The public will pick you. Something will happen and all of a sudden you're there. I dare say at least half a million people that technically have a voice as good as Beyonce, but she got picked. She was in a very good group. She's very attractive. Somebody saw commercial value in her and she's very talented. What I'm saying is there are a lot of talented people. You don't have control over that she was the one of Destiny's child of the three of them to get picked. You didn't have control over that. They all rehearsed just as much. They all probably, they all sang on key. They all were attractive. They all, in other words, you don't have control over some producer said, you're going out on your own. I'm, you're what I want. That's how you become successful. As long as your goal is not to become famous, you can choose any occupation you want and you can do it. You can play the guitar or piano or sing in local clubs around the country. You know, virtually everyone now on, on the internet or I do a podcast where we have singers, every one of them is on tour someplace on small clubs. Yeah, we're gonna be in Memphis next week. And then we're going to Des Moines, Iowa. There's a club there that I'm gonna sing at. And that's what these young people are doing, but they're doing what they love. They sing every day. They get in their cars, they're on the road, they're going. So you can do it. There are a lot of young people though, that they, they don't admit it, but they really wanna be famous. They wanna be a star. And it's understandable because it's it looks so attractive. I gotta tell you, it's not all fun and games. It's nice. You get a good table at a restaurant, but you lose privacy. You know, the, the things you lose, not that anyone should feel sorry for famous people, but it isn't all wonderful. It has its own annoyances. I'll say annoyances, not, you know, my God, I'm looking at people in Ukraine right now, so there's nothing to complain about here. What's the final thought for today? Usually say, may you never be on my show. <laughs> Take care I of was, yourself though. and each other. You were, you worked on it. This was no, a lot I of actually got hypnotized on it too. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, I hadn't remembered that you were the one. Yeah. Oh, right. Were you really hypnotized? You, I, you weren't. I think partially. Could be. Yeah. I mean, some people are, you know, I don't. It was I'm either that, that or I hadn't slept in three days because I just got back from a shoot. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah, that could be. I could fall asleep with them. You know, when they say close your eyes at my age, it's nap time. There's, we don't call that hyp hypnosis. We call that naps. Yeah. I'm a Thanks mom for of having four. Me. Same it thing. Is, yeah. It is great to see you. Thanks for Mary, having me. I've so appreciated this. This truly feels like a dream situation. And I am just so thankful. Well, you're a total sweetheart and good luck to you. Thank and I'll you. remember you when you're famous. Aw, you're the best. Thank Bye. you. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Good morning, Vietnam. Oh my God, dad. Do you remember what a stress case I was before each show that I produced and how I would call you in a complete and utter total panic? You've been doing that your whole life. <laughs> it's called butterflies before the game. If you didn't do it, it wouldn't be natural. It wouldn't be where you, oh, that's how you get your juices flowing. That's what makes you human. And then you perform brilliantly. But seriously, dad, like, do you remember when I would call and I didn't have any guests like the day before the show was going to tape? And I'm like, I guess I'll be here all night. I'm literally going to be pounding the phone all night, going through binders and binders of numbers to get people to come because I'm not leaving until it's booked. Sometimes 
your best comes out in the two-minute drill. Sometimes our best is not where we play the game all day or all week long. Sometimes it has to be done and won in the last second is how you win a game. Sometimes it's that two-minute drill, whether it's in basketball or football, or even uh, when you're down to your last five minutes in a chess game in a tournament. <laughs> Those fast moves at the very end is what sometimes is the difference between winning an Olympic gold medal and getting the silver. But sometimes you fumble, and I have definitely fumbled. I lost to an eight-year-old for the National Open Championship, up three pieces. So sometimes you can fumble a piece and another piece and another piece back, and then even blow the draw at the end. Sometimes when you're falling or fumbling, it slips away. Remember, uh, Tom Brady won a Super Bowl when he was trailing at the half, 28-3 to against Atlanta, and came back and won 34-28. So you're talking about sometimes when the game is slipping away, it can happen to anybody where we lose. But those that grit it out and keep fighting and never give up have a chance to win the game no matter what the odds. You know what I thought was interesting, too? He said it requires luck to make it to where he's made it. Well, I think all the variables have to be in the right place and or all the moves have to come in the right order. And sometimes you can make good moves, but they don't sit always at that moment in time. Sometimes when you least expect it, it comes together and you have to take advantage of it when it does come together. You can call that luck or you can call that being fortunate where, again, Part of life is timing, and timing is everything sometimes. Sometimes what appears to be going your way fails, and at other times when it looks like you're going to fail because of the experiences that you've had, uh, you're able to rise sometimes at that moment to a higher level and where you really achieve. When those moments occur, you have to really go for it because you don't know how many opportunities there really are in our lifetime to be able to really have an ultimate value uh, succession or or succeed. I want to read you something really special that also happened. So I thanked Jerry's publicist over and over for making that happen. And she said to me, sorry, it took so long. And she said, today is my dad's birthday. You're blessed to have your daddy. I miss mine terribly. He died nine years ago. Hug your daddy for me. Well, that's a very special moment, isn't it? The time and place came together because you've got a show called The Better Call Daddy Show, where you also give people a look at their future, the legacy of their family, and what they want as a continuum. And sometimes that special moment about your dad, you're able to reflect and share that in our show. Congratulations, and hopefully you will continue to have the blessing of being able to have all kinds of guests, all kinds of variables where we can discuss and all get a little wiser together. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 